You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, if you will, <clears throat> to the book of Galatians chapter 5. You may have already held it there from last Sunday. Galatians <clears throat> chapter 5 is where we are this morning, continuing a brand new series. I'll share a little bit more about it in just a second, <clears throat> called Bearing Fruit. And uh, I'll recap what we covered last Sunday. It's about a nine or ten week series, actually. And uh, this is week number two. So even if you miss one or two in there, still, you can jump right back in. I typically recap things that we've covered in the past, so if this is you know, your very first time here, no worries, we're going to catch you up to speed. But before we do that, you know, let's just play a little game called Fruit or No Fruit, right? How many of you love game shows? Any of you? Let me see your hands. A few of you, not a whole lot. And uh, I was kind of raised on game shows. We called that babysitting at my house, I guess, when I was a kid. And uh, game shows were a part of the fabric of my upbringing. So this is called Fruit or No Fruit. Here's the way it works. I'm going to show about 10 different pictures one by one. And if you believe it's a fruit, you raise your hand. If you don't, you keep your hand down. Okay, nice and simple. So the very first one, let's throw out a little softball there. Apple, how many of you believe that's a fruit? You've got it. All right, good. How many of you do not? You can raise your hand. All right, I think we're all on the same page. So the next one, number two, tomato. If you believe it's a fruit, let's see your hand. All right. And if you don't believe it's a fruit, raise your hand. Let's see. All right. Some of you were scared off by some of the others. So here's a cool thing. In the 1800s, the Supreme Court literally had a court case about determining whether the tomato was a fruit or not a fruit. It had everything to do with tariffs and taxes and those kind of things. So it literally went to the Supreme Court, 1800s, right here in our own country, and they determined that the tomato is actually a vegetable for the sake of taxes and tariffs in the 1800s, but botanically speaking, it is a fruit. So those of you that raise your hand first, you win the prize that doesn't exist. All right, the third one, banana pudding. Fruit, let's see your hands. All right, I think the rest of you are just sleeping because certainly you had to raise your hand in recognizing that was a fruit. What about orange juice? Would that be a fruit? Let me see your hand. Does that constitute? Does that qualify? I mean, it's 100% fruit juice. So, I mean, in a way, I mean, I guess it could be. All right, what about the next one? The pumpkin. Is that a fruit? Let's see you raise your hand if you believe it is. All right, if it's not a fruit, let's see you raise your hand. All right, the fruit, I mean, the pumpkin is actually... Yes, a fruit, and I will explain that in just a minute. What about avocado? By the way, I don't like avocados. Am I in a, am I in a bad group? I mean, I have a feeling this is an avocado group. I mean, I don't know, but I don't really like it a whole lot. Susie loves it, so wait, wait, don't, don't go. You, well, okay, we're already here. Fruit cake. Oh, no, let's go back. I'm getting confused. Fruit cake. What about it? Fruit cake? Is that a fruit? I mean, it is loaded with fruit. It's like juicy fruit gum in a way, so that's got to be fruit, if not at least during Christmas season. All right, so the next one, bell peppers. How many of you say that's a fruit? Let me see your hand. <laughs> You're seeing the trend here, aren't you? You're like three of you. Yeah, I think maybe. Uh, it, is a, it is a fruit. Fruit roll-ups. Got to be a fruit, man. I mean, that's definitely fruit. And then the last one, I mean, this is a no-brainer, Fig Newtons. I mean, those have to qualify absolutely as fruit. All right, so we've been in this series called uh, Bearing Fruit, and we're in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Now, I challenged you last Sunday that if you're not much into uh, memorizing Scripture, these two verses are a really, really good place to start. They're simple. You know, we, got, we can teach you some songs to help you memorize this if we need to, but this is a key passage of Scripture. You may have learned it a long time ago, for those of you that were raised in church. Others of you that weren't so much raised in church, but you're just now kind of getting into it, you, you've already read it back behind me, and you're thinking, so really? 
That's a big deal. It's just a list of a bunch of good qualities. It is a big deal. So let's just take a second to read through it again, and then we're going to move through and unpack a little bit more of what this means. Galatians 5, and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so what, what happens here is we are seeing some of the essential qualities of a growing Christian life. These are, we're not talking apples, oranges, lemons here, right? This is what's called the fruit of the Spirit. And there are nine different qualities that are listed. And the reason these equalities are so important is, is that they're not just add-ons to the Christian life. They're not just sort of like a buffet, like, okay, I'll take, let me, let me give me some, some love and some goodness and some gentleness, but yeah, patience is too hard. I don't think I'm going to try to incorporate that into my Christian life or self-control. I won't ever be able to have fun, so I don't really want any self-control, but I'll take those other three that I really like. It doesn't work that way. This is important because these three qualities, like we saw, or these nine qualities, like we saw last Sunday in the very first principle that we looked at, these qualities, the whole concept of bearing fruit in a believer's life has everything to do with Christ-likeness. I mean, this is an issue of, of Christian growth, of discipleship. And for you as a follower of Jesus, I mean, this is evidence of transformation in your life, that we can look at this, nine, this list of nine things in Galatians chapter 5, and, and we should be able to qualify them and, and to even, to some degree, take inventory of our lives to see if they're there. And they're incredibly important. In fact, in this culture where testing positive is not a good thing, seems like whenever you hear somebody test positive, hey, I tested positive, you're like, hey, all right, you're backing up saying, I'm going to be praying for you, right? That's not a good thing. We want to test positive for these nine qualities. In fact, I, we would hope that if somebody came up and said, hey, how are you testing, testing for gentleness in your life? Hey, man, I tested positive last week. So far this week, I'm testing positive, and I hope to test positive next week. The same for joy or, or, for, joy or for self-control or any of those other nine qualities. And the reason it's so important is because these are evidence that we are in relationship with Jesus. These are qualities of Christ-likeness. This is where we demonstrate that we are growing as a believer. What we saw last Sunday as well is that the key to bearing fruit, if we're going to be that kind of a believer who bears fruit, the key to it is learning what it means to walk in the Holy Spirit. It's not going to come because we try harder. It's the, the, this fruit that we look at is not going to come because we do better. This comes from walking in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, last Sunday, we looked at this, he gave an incredible visual. Remember I mentioned that fruit we read all the way through Scripture often as a visual. And he gave one of the best visuals we can ever think of in using fruit to describe the nature of the Christian life. And what he told us was in John 15 where he said about himself, he said, I am the vine, or, or you could say I am the tree, that helps us to understand a little better, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he paints this picture that goes right back to the whole botanical picture of fruit, that if you have a fruit tree in your yard, if you've got a lemon tree, say, in your backyard, for example, and you cut off a few of those branches and lay them down beside that tree, when you come back and you're looking for fruit during that time of year, you're not going to go picking up the dead branches you cut off the tree to look for fruit. Why? Because you know instinctively fruit's not going to be on those branches those branches are disconnected from the tree. They're disconnected from the vine. The branches don't produce the fruit. 
If they did, you'd pick up all those branches you cut off and you go looking through them. Hey, I wonder if there's some lemons in here. But you know the branches don't produce the fruit. The tree produces the fruit through the branch. And that's what Jesus says in John 15. He says, if you try to produce these qualities of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness in your own strength as a branch separate from me, you're not going to be able to do that because a branch separate from me can't do anything. But if you're engrafted into me, if you're connected to me, he would use the terminology, if you abide in me and I in you, if we're in this relationship where you are resting in me, you are delighting in me, you are connected to me, you are cultivating a relationship with me, you're spending time with me, you're yielded to me, you are surrendered to me, he says, then I will produce fruit through you. And it's the essence of the Christian life that the key to us bearing the fruit that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5 is when we ultimately walk in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, before we even get to verse 22, that's why he says, walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. He says that, why? Because it is the key to us producing (laughs) fruit. So it's important because bearing fruit reflects Jesus to this world, reflects what God looks like. Bearing fruit also brings, brings ultimately fulfillment to us. Right, man, who wants to go through their lives? Who wants to walk through their lives and be, be ultimately characterized by bitterness and by lack of patience and by anxiety and by all the negative stuff, right, uh, of, of the fruit of the Spirit? None of us want to. But when those qualities are present, that's where fulfillment is often found. One thing about fruit that's really interesting when, when you think about it, um, fruit is created. It was created on the third day. That's where we see fruit enter into God's creation, created on, on day three. Again, it's a visual of a lot of different things that are the essence of the Christian life. But when you think about fruit, think, think about this. Fruit has its seeds most often in the center, right? When you eat an apple, you take a bite out of the apple, you eat around. When you get to the core, that's where the seeds are. They are protected in the center. When you cut a lemon, those seeds are in the center. Uh, When you cut virtually any type of fruit, the seeds are found in the center, protected. And the reason that those seeds are there from a creative perspective is that it, by its creative design, is purposed to multiply, so that when a lemon falls off of a lemon tree and doesn't get picked and eaten, whenever an apple falls off an apple tree and doesn't get picked and eaten, if it just sits there, it's going to decay, and ultimately those seeds are going to fall into the ground or picked up by birds or spread by the wind, and they're going to multiply. Or a wild animal may come and ultimately eat it. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but the digestive process will take place, right? And those seeds will be scattered. I know it's not a great thought to think of about an hour before you go and settle down for lunch, and you probably won't order fruit salad now that I've used this illustration. But the picture of fruit is that it's created to multiply. And here's an awesome thing for us to recognize, that you, as a follower of Jesus, who are called to ultimately abide in him and to bear much fruit, right? He bears it through you. There is an evangelistic purpose to that, that as we go into this world and and we demonstrate love, and we demonstrate gentleness, and we demonstrate self-control, and all those nine qualities, it is putting Jesus out there for the world to see. Now, we still have to share the gospel. We still have to tell them how to have a relationship with Jesus. Them just seeing it in us doesn't ultimately lead them to, to Christ at all. We have to tell them, but what a beautiful way that he has put on 
display. Take, take a look at how this quote demonstrates, then we're going to jump in, because this is important. You're probably thinking, man, I could have got all this watching you know, Georgia Public Television and learned about fruit, but it all ties in so well with what we're looking at. Look at this quote from Business Insider back in 2018. It says, anything that grows on a plant and as a means by which that plant gets its seeds out into the world is a fruit. That's the definition of a fruit, botanically speaking, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So fruit isn't part of the plant itself, but it is a reproductive part growing from the plant. That's why cucumber, that's why tomato, technically are fruits. Because they have seeds in the center and are designed to multiply. That's why a pumpkin, I tricked you on that one, right? Is technically a fruit. It's why an avocado is a fruit. It's why celery is not. Celery is part of the plant. It doesn't grow separate from the plant. Celery is a stem. An onion is not a fruit. It is a bulb. Lettuce is not a fruit. It is a leaf. It is part of the plant. You are called to produce as you yield to the person of the Holy Spirit, fruit in this world that ultimately puts Christ on display. And listen, when we do that, and when we press in close and he produces that fruit through us, we are accomplishing the spread of the gospel in and of itself. We are putting Christ on display. And so you go back to Galatians chapter 5, and it lists this beautiful picture of what fruit looks like. It's love and it's joy and it's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Every single one of those demonstrated perfectly by the person of Jesus when he walked this earth. Today we jump in with the very first one in the list and we look at the first fruit of the Spirit that's listed, that being the fruit of love. It's listed first, I believe, for a reason. When you think about it, all the other qualities of Christ-likeness kind of find their way back to love. And when Paul writes this letter to the Galatian Christians, he's writing it in the Greek language. Now, in the Greek language, as you may know, <clears throat> it's different, obviously, than the English language. But one of the ways it shows that it's different is through the, uh, through the words that it uses to describe what we say is love. We love everything, right? We love the Braves, and we love ice cream, and we love our families, and we love all kinds of different stuff. Well, in the Greek language, they had different types of words to describe different types of love. When Paul writes Galatians 5, and he says one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, he doesn't use the Greek word phileo, which means a brotherly kindness kind of a love. We get our city, Philadelphia, from that particular type of Greek word, city of brotherly love. He didn't use that word. Paul didn't use the word eros, which is referring more to a romantic type of a love. He didn't use that word. Paul used the word agape. And the word agape is an unconditional love. And when Paul says that the very first fruit of the Spirit that is demonstrated in the life of a believer who is engrafted into the vine, who is abiding in Jesus, who is connected, trusting in, relying upon, surrendered to, the first fruit that's demonstrated is going to be this quality, ultimately, of love. That's the very first one that he lists. He says it is unconditional in nature. It is not contractual. The way our world treats love is from a contractual perspective. If you break the contract, I'm not going to love you anymore. 
or at least I'm going to love you less than what I used to. That's not the way that this is viewed here in this particular Greek word. This is not a contractual love. This is a covenant kind of a love. A covenant love that says it doesn't matter where you, where you go, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter to what level you hurt me, I'm still going to love you unconditionally. Look, look at what it says in 1 John chapter 4. If you want to flip over to 1 John, kind of hold your spot there. We'll look at about four different passages here quickly in 1 John. But look at what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. John writes here, and he says, in this is love, all right? If the fruit of the Spirit is love, this is what it looks like. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfactory payment for our sins. In other words, this kind of love is unconditional. It depends on God. It doesn't depend on us. See, a lot of times when we choose who we're going to love, it depends on the other person, right? I mean, let's just be honest. When we're at our worst, we love based on the person. Oh, this person is like me. This person is nice to me. This person did something to help me. This person I have an interest in or whatever it may be. I think I'm going, I'm going to choose to love them. They're so easy to love. Oh, but this other person over here, they were mean to me or they did something to hurt me or they, they, um, they're not like me. They're vastly different than I am. And for me, maybe it's going to be a little harder to love them. In fact, based on maybe who they are, what they've done, I may choose not to love them at all. Why? Because that view, follow me on this, is a love that's based on the other person. God doesn't love, I hate to burst our bubble, but God doesn't love you because of you. He loves you because of himself. Right? He doesn't love you because you had a great day yesterday. He doesn't love you because you're in church today. He doesn't love you because you went four straight days reading your Bible. <clears throat> he doesn't love you because you, you, know, you worship him when nobody else is looking. He, 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 he receives all that as worship. Those are very good things. But his love of you is not based on that stuff. His love of you is not based on you or me at all. He loves us because of himself. That's who he is. That's the kind of love that he wants to produce through us, that when we engraft into the vine and when we come and we find our life in him, and we connect to him, that's the kind of love that he wants to produce through us. Paul puts it first on the list. He says that the first fruit of the Spirit here is this quality of love. It is unconditional. No strings attached to it. Sacrificial. Look at what John writes. Again, a little bit further back. Go back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 16. He says, we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That kind of love is unconditional. It is sacrificial. It puts another before ourselves. That's why Jesus would say that one of the top two greatest commandments is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our neighbor like this. Not in a way that's conditioned upon how good of a neighbor they are, but on a way that's reflective of his perfect, unconditional, sacrificial love that's being demonstrated through us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Look at what it says. <clears throat> Paul writes here elsewhere in his letter to the Romans. He says, but God demonstrates 
He demonstrates, that's a very visual word, he demonstrates in the public arena, he demonstrates for all to see his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This agape love that is part of the fruit of the Spirit is a love that's put on public display. It's not something that we keep internalized. It is proven, it is demonstrated, it was put out there for it to be experienced by other people. That's the kind of love that God wants to ultimately produce as fruit through our lives. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. God, again, loves us willfully, volitionally, as an act of His will, by His own choice, not just when He feels, feels like it. Listen, I've, I, I can guarantee you that there have been things I've done this week that God would say, you know what? I don't really feel like loving, loving Him <laughs> this week. I, I know y'all probably, not so much, but for me, there, I'm sure there have been plenty of instances where God would say, I just don't feel like loving him. Brooks is just so high maintenance. Man, he, co- he costs so much. I mean, he costs me a cross. I don't, just don't feel like loving him this week. He's just, he's just not got it all together. You know, God doesn't love that way. He doesn't love us based on his feelings. He loves us by his willful choice. Again, because that's who he is. That's the kind of love he calls us to demonstrate. And it starts with him. It doesn't start with us. So who, who's exhibit A? I mean, who do we go to to give us a picture of how we can love like this? It's Jesus. Right? Paul didn't love perfectly this way. None of the disciples love perfectly this way. There's nobody that we can look to who as a missionary or a pastor or someone in a local church who's a follower of Jesus, that we can look to and say, now that is the embodiment of perfect love. So who's exhibit A? It's Jesus himself. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of examples in the Gospels where we can see Jesus loving with this kind of love where it was dependent on him, not the other person. I mean, he would meet people who had failed. He would meet people who were just in the gutter. He would meet people that had been ostracized and cast aside for whatever it may have been, for something they had done or because of a disease that they had. And these were people that Jesus would prove that his love didn't depend on them, it depended on him. And probably no better demonstration maybe that we could even think of would be Just moments before the cross, hours before the cross, Jesus is in a little room, probably dimly lit, and he's there with his 12 closest followers called disciples. And he takes a towel, and he takes a basin of water, and Jesus, this is God, this is the creator, this is the one who had created this this water, he had created these people, and and Jesus comes and he, he kneels down in front of these disciples And he takes the form of an absolute servant who would only do this for one who is in higher authority than they were. And Jesus takes this basin of water and this towel, and he comes and he kneels or sits in front of these disciples coming to one named Judas Iscariot. And Jesus knew in his mind what Judas would do, that he was soon to make a decision that would change, in some ways, the course of Jesus' earthly life. Jesus kneels before him and he takes the towel and he takes the water and he begins to wash those dirty feet of a man who literally moments later with clean feet would get up and strike a deal with the religious leaders behind Jesus' back that would send him to the cross. That's agape love. That's the kind of love 
that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, when he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's not this worldly, it's not this emotional, self-centered, self-directed, self-determined kind of a love. It is a love that comes from outside of us. What a perfect description of fruit. It's not part of the plant. It comes from outside the plant. You thought I was wasting your time when I gave that definition earlier, right? Fruit is not part of the plant. It is produced by the plant on the outside. Love will not be generated by us because we try harder. Love will not be generated by us because we try to do better. Love is only generated by us when we come to the vine, when we come to the Savior, when we yield to the person of the Holy Spirit, and we engraft ourselves to Him, and we connect, and we find life, and we develop relationship. When we do all of that with Him, and He begins to produce it through us. And I'm telling you, it's real easy to come to a setting like this and to sing good music and to high-five Jesus, but when we leave this place and we go out into a fallen world and we're surrounded by people that aren't easy to love, we're not high-fiving Jesus much anymore. That's where the rubber hits the road. And it's easy to come into this place and to hear a message or an illustration or have your quiet time at your table with your coffee and, and, and you've got your special little niche there in your home and, and, and we listen to our praise music and we have all these good times where we high-five Jesus and it's awesome right? Those times are, are necessary. Those times are desi- should be desired. But listen, it's not all about just high-fiving Jesus with this emotional experience, because what do you do then with that ex who walked out on you and left, left you with all this responsibility, and now you're filled with bitterness and resentment and anger, and your walk with God has never been been so badly damaged because you don't have a heart to praise him because of all this bitterness inside of you. How do you choose to love that person who hurt you so badly? You can't do it. (laughs) It's only when God produces that kind of love through you that ends up setting you free. How do you love that friend that you've been so close to for years? Maybe you were in each other's weddings. You were there for all the high moments. They were there when your kids were born. But man, something happened. They said something. They drove that knife in your back. And it's never been the same. How do you love that person? How do you love that person who said something to the boss that you never even knew and it wasn't even exactly true? The next thing you know, they got the promotion and you're left. You're just left with a bunch of anger because you thought you were next. What do you do with that neighbor on the other side of your hedges that you don't get along with? And you get so bent out of shape when you drive up in that driveway, and it's like, man, does that guy ever cut his grass? I cut my grass all the time, and he never cuts his grass. Does he know what he's doing to my property values? And does he know what he's doing? I got friends coming over. Or maybe you're the one who drives up and says, I can't believe that guy's out there. He, what does he do? Cut his grass with scissors? His yard looks perfect. Look at my yard. He makes me look so bad. How do you love that guy? You see what I'm saying? The reason I think Paul put this one first in the list is because we live in a world that gets love so wrong. And yet we also live in a world that so desperately badly needs to see what it looks like. Why? Because the God that we hope they ultimately come to know personally is characterized first and foremost by love. What would Paul say? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. Faith and hope. I mean, those are like bookends, right? That's pretty big stuff. Faith, hope, and love abide these three. But what's the greatest? love. How do we love how do we love like this? It's it's not cause we do better. 
I can't say it enough. It's not because we try harder. It's when we press in closer. And we let our Savior produce that kind of love through us. And sometimes it starts, let's just be honest, with an honest assessment of ourselves where we realize, you know what, I'm not anywhere near where I need to be. i got people on my list that it's not just hard to love. I choose not to love them. Maybe there are people on your list, they look different than you ethnically, they look different than you socially, they, they act differently than you do. Maybe they're different because of lifestyle choices. And even though you could come and you could bring a Bible and hold it up and smack them black and blue with all the places in here where it says you shouldn't be living that way, <clears throat> where the rubber hits the road, you've chosen not to love them. Even though one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. Four passages we looked at were from 1 John. You probably already know this, but just to kind of connect the dots a little bit, maybe, maybe for you, you've forgotten a little bit of what John's story is. John was a disciple of Jesus. John was in the room when, Judas, when Jesus washed Judas' feet. John was part of the inner circle of Jesus. He was close to Christ. He would write the Gospel of John. He would also write the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John was a fiery individual. When you read of him in the Gospels, it was around the 30s A.D., right? And one of the stories we read of of John in the Gospel, there's this instance where Jesus and John and a couple of others are traveling into this this, uh, Samaritan town, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, and they're traveling into this Samaritan town, and the Samaritan village is not welcoming of Jesus at all. No place for him, no desire for him, and John comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, Lord, I'll tell you what, why don't, why don't we do this? I've got a great idea. Why don't we call down fire from heaven, and let's just torch these people right here, right now, okay? This is me. I mean, it's in, that's in the Bible, right? You probably won't use it for your, you know, preschool Bible devotion, I'm sure, but it's in there, okay? And so John, not his most stellar disciple moment, is saying, Jesus, let's just call down fire. I mean, you and I know what these people are doing. They don't want any part of you. They're not making room for us. Let's just, do you want me? I'll do it. I'll call down fire from heaven, and we will just burn them up right here on the spot. That was John. 60 years later, around the year 90 AD, when he's writing the book of 1 John, I would be willing to say you probably cannot go to another book in the New Testament, at least percentage-wise, based on the number of verses. 1 John is a short book, five chapters. You probably won't find another book in the Bible where you will find more said about the topic of love in those short verses than what you'll find in 1 John. Why is that? Because the very man who wanted to burn up the enemies, and the ethnically different people of the Samaritans is the man that God would cultivate and produce through his spirit as John abided in the vine, this quality called love. And it would take perhaps upwards of 60 years to do it. You know, it's cool, John would have a couple of other passages that are especially meaningful. First John chapter 3, take a look and we'll close with these two. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, look at what it says. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Wow. <laughs> the one who does not love remains in death. 
so John, are you telling me that love is so powerful that it is all actually an outward evidence of one's inner relationship with God? John would say, that's exactly what I'm saying. In the same way you would come to a tree that's supposed to bear fruit and say no fruit, you would probably determine no life. John says, very potentially, the person who claims to know Christ but has no fruit very possibly also has no spiritual life as well. 1 John chapter 3, verse 25 or verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. You know, it is a <clears throat> tension that is hard to communicate. I've been communicating like this for years and years and years. This is one of the hard ones that's difficult to communicate, that on one level, we cannot produce these qualities of love and joy and peace and patience and all the others. We can't produce them in our own strength, and John 15 shows us that. We can't produce them. But as you see in that passage of Scripture, however, it is also a command which highlights the necessity of these qualities being demonstrated in our lives. If we try to demonstrate love in our own strength, we're going to fail every single time because it doesn't work that way. But it is so important what it does is when God commands us to love one another, to love our neighbors as ourselves, he commands us that there is a responsibility then for us not to just try harder, do better, but to press in closer to him so that as we press in close and he creates opportunities to demonstrate love, we then have it within us to share it with those around us. Does that make sense? So what's the response? Maybe the response needs to be that we, that we take a step closer. <laughs> Maybe the response is that we cry out a little louder. But God, would you, would you create, would you cultivate in me this kind of love, this unconditional, self-sacrificing, uh, uh, sacrificial love that is a demonstration of my life in Christ? Would you produce that kind of love to me, even to those that are difficult to love, even to those who have hurt me, even to those who have wronged me, even to those who are so different from me? God, would you produce that kind of love through me? And here's what I'm going to do to bear my part of the responsibility— I'm going to press in close to you, Lord, and I'm going to cultivate a deeper walk with you so that I can see that demonstrated through my life. Now, what's at stake? <clears throat> what's at stake is, is probably your fulfillment. <laughs> what's at stake is, is maybe somebody else's relationship with the Lord. What's at stake is this world getting to see what Jesus looks like when people who claim to know him actually put him on display. If you know him, what can you do this week to press in closer? If you don't know him, man, what a great description we've seen today of a God who loves you. And if you're thinking, you know what, Brooks, I'm going to clean my life up and pretty soon I'm going to come to Jesus. 
I just need to get some stuff sorted out. I need to kind of get my personal life together. I need to clean up my language. I need to get this fixed and that fixed and that fixed. Listen, he's not waiting for that, and you're probably not going to do it in your own strength anyway. What he wants is you to just come and surrender and say, Jesus, thank you for loving me so much unconditionally that's not built on what I've done or, or, or what I've not done. But thank you for loving me so much that you proved it on a cross, and today, as an act of my will, I lay down my sin, and I invite you to forgive and take over. That's where the road starts. And if you've never done that, you can do it today, right where you sit, and begin a brand new relationship with him. <laughs> That'll never end. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this, um, this is deep stuff. When I first started this series and started plugging in, um, I don't know that I even realized, Lord, how deep some of this runs. It is not just a simple, superficial, look at, let's look at these nine endearing qualities of what we should strive for. Lord, it is so much more than just that. Lord, it really does have everything to do with our Christ-likeness, with our yieldedness to you. It doesn't have anything to do with us just trying harder in our own strength, but surrendering so that you can produce these qualities through us. And so, Lord, it really changes the way we pray. When we encounter someone who's hard to love, Lord, whether it's a coworker or a neighbor or someone who's hurt us or maybe even a family member, Lord, it changes the way we pray. And God, when we remember that we really don't bring anything to the table that would cause you to love us if you only chose to love us based on who we are or what we've done, Lord, that your love is unconditional. You didn't look past our sins, God. You just chose to pay for them for us because you love us. And God, that, that helps us to look at love a little differently. Nobody has hurt us as badly as we've hurt you. Lord, nobody has wronged us as badly as we have wronged you. Lord, no one has disowned us. No one has betrayed us. No one has run our name through the mud as badly as we have you. And yet you, as an act of your will, chose to love us and to love us publicly. And even beyond that, God, you tell us if we just press close, <laughs> you'll produce that same love through us over time as well. And so, God, we pray for that. And God, as it comes and we see it, Lord, may we give you the credit and not ourselves. God, thank you for never giving up. For those that have never trusted Jesus, Lord, may today be the day where they pray the prayer that can change everything as they surrender their lives to Christ and choose as an act of their will to follow him. We praise you, God, for your word that changes us and it's in Jesus' name we pray.